Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm Ali Selby, and today's guest is the newest inductee into the Australian Fund Manager Hall of Fame. He joins a long, illustrious list of Australia's most recognisable investors, including Care Nielsen, Chris Cuff, Anton Tagliaferro, Catherine Alfrey, Phil King, and many more. What's unique, though, is that all 21 other names on this list are fundamental investors. This is the first time that someone who employs a quantitative approach to investing has been added to the Hall of Fame. Our guest today is Murray Waked. Murray has had a really interesting career. He started out with legal in general in the insurer's actuarial research division before landing a role with Rothschild Asset Management and eventually moving his way up the ranks as the firm's head of quantitative research. In 1997, Murray joined Barclays Global Investors as the firm's head of equity investments, where he would spearhead the firm's active equity business in Australia. He later nabbed a role as BGI's CEO and Chief Investment Officer for the overall Australian business, which managed a whopping $50 billion on behalf of its Australian and New Zealand clients. Before long, Murray ascended through the global organisation and was appointed Global Chief Investment Officer, managing nearly $300 billion across US, European and Asian equity markets. In 2010, Murray founded Vimva Investment Management quantitative or systematic funds management house that today manages $23 billion on behalf of its investors. And yet, despite all this success, Murray has remained relatively under the radar. He's not one to boast of his achievements and he's very rarely fronted the media. At Livewire, we dedicate ourselves to finding the best fund managers in Australia and in a testament to how underground Murray and the team at Vimba is, he hadn't even popped up on our radar. Today, we'll be learning all about Maury's journey in investment management, why he believes it's so important to remain unemotional while investing, as well as some of the models that he's using today to identify opportunities. Maury, thank you so much for joining us on The Rules of Investing today. I'm really excited to have this discussion with you. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me. First off, congratulations on being inducted into the Australian Fund Manager Hall of Fame. Your friend Nick Gorman gave a really wonderful speech about your journey in funds management. How's it feel to be on the receiving end of that award? Yeah, as I said on the night in my acceptance speech, it's a real honour and a privilege. There's so many uh, great managers that have been on there and investors that have been on there over the past 20 or so years. You've already named a few of them. So I feel really privileged and honoured to be amongst that group. And as I said as well, that when, while it's an individual award, when I think of the award, it's really been a team effort because I've had so many people over the years that have helped me and even made me look good. <laughs> okay. I'd love to know how it all started for you. What made you want to pursue a career in funds management in the first place? Well, initially, I didn't really know anything about investment markets. It was never a career path that I was looking to take. Um, I studied actuarial science at university. Um, I had a scholarship with a firm called Legal in General, and I joined them straight out of uni and worked in their actuarial research division. And I thought for that time that that would be my career path. Um, I worked with a few people, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jason Davis, actually, um, who was a year or two older than me. He ended up leaving uh, Legal in General and going to a firm called Rothschild. And maybe a year or so later, he gave me a call and said, you should come and uh, talk to us. This investment side of the world is really, really cool. Yes, I went and met Jason and his boss at the time, um, Greg Vaughan, and um, they made me an offer and I moved over into the asset management industry and I really didn't know anything at all. So I really had to learn things pretty quickly and I fell in love with it straight away. And the rest is history. As they say, yeah. 
Yeah, you've been a pioneer in quant investing. I feel like it's still not widely understood, but I imagine it would have been even more so two decades ago when you were really starting. What were some of the memorable conversations you had starting out when trying to explain what quant investing actually was? Yeah, I mean, the most challenging part was even trying to explain it to people internally, uh, our sales and marketing team, trying to get them to understand you know, what quantitative investing is. Now, we tried to differentiate ourselves and not refer to ourselves as quants, but more so systematic uh, investing, because quant can mean a whole range of things, just like fundamental uh, managers can sort of ex- have different extremes from value, growth, and anything in between. Um, so the first thing was really to try and educate our internal people, and then also obviously our prospects that... All we are really is investors. Uh, we just have a different style of investing. Um, rather than effectively having co- analysts that cover, you know, 20, 10, 20 companies each that go out there and visit those companies and so forth, we wanted to get an edge by being able to cover a lot of companies um, a lot quicker than others. We might have been, we might give up a little bit of skill and a little bit of that in-depth knowledge that some of these traditional analysts would know about each company, but we'd more than make it up on what we call breadth and the, and the fact that we could cover many, many companies very, very quickly. The other thing to think about is, at the end of the day, our investing perform- our investment performance is really a function of the people that we have. It doesn't matter how good your technology is, how good your investment modelling and algorithms are. Uh, as they say, you know, it's all about the information that goes into it. So having people that have good investment ideas, good investment insight, good common sense and intuition is the first uh, and most important thing that we look for when we hire people because it's that our people that develop the models in the first place. And all we're really doing is implementing our, implementing our ideas in a structured and systematic way. Okay. You've had quite the storied career, having works for the likes of Legal and General, Rothschild and Barclays. What surprised you the most about that journey? Yeah, I think the if I focus just on the investment side of it, when I moved to Rothschild, um, I was fortunate enough to have a rapid journey. Uh, it was pretty quick. And I mean by fortunate is I got given some opportunities uh, the people I worked with, a few people left to go to other organisations and that sort of opened up a door for me. And you know, to be honest, I had to be good enough to take advantage of that. And fortunately, I was good enough. Um, so, yeah, Rothschild, I was made the head of quantitative research at a relatively young age. I think I was 23. Oh, wow. And then um, a couple of years later, I was um, asked to move over to, to BGI. They were setting up an active equity business here in Australia and I think I was 26 at the time. And so basically being thrown in the deep end and sort of having to work it out um, ensured that I had to learn things very, very quickly. And so my, uh, in hindsight, it was a good thing because it really got me engaged. It, it made me work really, really hard. I'm a very competitive person and I think anyone in this industry needs to be competitive because it is all about active performance, investment performance at the end of the day. Um, and you have to work really hard to you know, achieve better returns than your competitors. Mm, you talked about having, to, I guess, having a really steep learning curve. What was some of the greatest lessons you learned during that time? You know, you're, as a young kid coming through, you think, you know, these investment markets, they're good. It's all about um, outperformance. Yeah, there's some holy grail out there and I'm going to find it. I'm going to find out what makes companies tick, what causes stock markets or industries to move up or down. And you learn pretty quickly that you really don't know much at all. So the more I learnt, the more I realised I, I knew I didn't know. Um, investment markets in, in particular, stock, stock markets are very, very noisy at the best of times. And so really I learnt pretty quickly that you have to be pretty, pretty humble and modest and realise that there's more that you don't know than you do know. And to ensure that when you are investing, focus on the things that you think are going to make a difference and lead to outperformance and try and, where possible, mitigate the risks about the things that you don't know to ensure that you're not taking uh, inadvertent exposures in the portfolio that might be detrimental to performance. Mm. How do you think retail investors can replicate that themselves? 
we all, as humans, have cognitive biases. We all have certain behaviours and so forth. I think for the average investor out there, call them a retail investor, it's important to um, you know, seek advice from you know, good advisors, um, seek to invest your money with good investment managers that have a good team and a good track record and a very good philosophy. Um, I'm a bit cautious uh, to going out there and think you can find the, the superstar stock picker or this, you know, two or three companies that you think are going to do well. Uh, I usually try and avoid the herd mentality because people tend to operate and move in herds and, and when the herd gets too big, that's typically when you want to be a little bit contrarian and go against the trend. But ultimately, have, a, have an investment approach, a philosophy um, that you can adhere to that makes sense and that can work over the long term is probably most important. Investment markets have changed rapidly, I feel, over the past 13 years since you set up Inva. Has your approach to investment changed at all during that time or the way that you think about investing? Yeah, I think yeah, we, you always have to adapt. You have to change. The beauty of the investment markets is they're very dynamic. You know, no two days are the same. Um, yeah, there's a lot of market participants. There's so many stocks around the world that you can invest in. For example, there's a universe of ten to 15,000 stocks in our, that we can invest in around the world. Uh, to dissect, to, to break them down and only invest in one or 2,000, which is still a lot, you still have to make you know, decisions across those companies. The insights that we have, the ideas and intuition, our philosophy doesn't change. How we model those insights and how we model those ideas has changed quite a lot over the past 10, you know, 15 years. There's so much more information now that's available, readily available, whereas 10, 15 years ago, you had to dig a lot deeper and a lot harder to get that information. A lot more information now is electronically available. Mm-hmm. So that means that there, we can model certain companies and certain uh, insights in a lot more detail uh, than what we could 10 or 15 years ago. In saying that, our competitors can do the same thing. So it's really about being ahead of the game, um, getting those ideas, ensuring that you can model them accurately as best you can, um, modeling, modeling them across as many stocks as possible. You know, for example, one of the great innovations we did, we started this in 2006, is being able to read text using algorithms. So we call it natural language processing. Uh, being able to read, you know, whether it be research reports, news reports, company conference calls and their reports, being able to read thousands of those reports you know, systematically uh, via, via a computer effectively uh, every day. You know, if I was to read 20 research reports a day, I think I'd fall asleep after 10 of them. But to be able to read thousands of them every day systematically means that we're able to process so much more information a lot quicker and that informs our decision making and hopefully leads to better portfolios for our clients. Mm. Are you using generative AI today? We use some form of AI and machine learning techniques in our investment process. We're very um, selective in terms of where and how we use them. Um, if you go back probably 15 years ago, it was probably close to zero. Um, now it might be 15 to 20% of what we do has an AI and machine learning aspect to it. Um, it's important with those sort of uh, models, if I could put it that way, that you, know, you need to have data that's relatively stable, uh, data that's structured. Um, and the investment market data typically and certainly stock prices are very noisy and very unstructured. So there are certain aspects of investing where you can use them and certain parts where we try and shy away from them because they can be um, fraught with danger. Okay, let's dive a little bit deeper into your models. Can you provide a beginner's guide to quantitative or systematic investing? Yeah, a beginner's way I like to describe it is um, we're basically people leveraged by technology. People provide the investment insight, the investment ideas, um, the vision, and then technology leverages those insights and can implement those ideas systematically without emotion repetitively day after day. That's really it in a nutshell. So if you had a 
a good investment idea and just take a very simple one that you want to buy companies that trade on low price to earnings multiples. Just take that sort of simple metric. The, what you, we do is you go around and calculate the price to earnings ratio for every company in your global universe. You then rank them every day and then you can build a portfolio which is tilted towards lower price to earnings ratio stocks and tilted away from higher uh, price to earnings ratio stocks. Now, I could go do that collect the data, put in a spreadsheet, but I can actually build some technology that can go out there systematically every single day, calculate the price to earnings or PE ratio of every stock around the world, rank them from 1 to 10,000, for example, and then build a portfolio that tilts towards the lower PE stocks and away from the higher PE stocks. Um, so you take that simple example and then sort of extrapolate that across more uh, sophisticated models that look at cash flow, that look at sort of behavioural elements, uh, that look at sort of market segmentations, that look at supply chain uh, linkages between companies all around the world and so forth. And then you can use technology to be able to calculate those you know, models every day, rank stocks around the world every day, and then build portfolios on the back of that. But ultimately, everything starts with the people. All the technology does, all the systematic part does, is leverage people's insights. What are some of the common misconceptions about systematic or quantitative investing? Yeah, coin investing gets a bit of a, a name and it can mean anything from east to west. It's a, it's a whole spectrum. You know, some misconceptions are that it's a black box, it's a computer. Um, I even got asked the question early in my career, why do you even hire people? You know, why not just <laughs> have the computers do the work? And, and, you know, that just doesn't happen. So it's not a black box, at least now from our perspective. There are probably some black box uh, quant processes out there. From our perspective, we can look at our portfolio of holdings and work backwards and understand exactly why we own a stock overweight or we might have a small position in a stock where we're underweight and go back and trace that back to understand what are the drivers of that position um, and what are the insights that led us to have an overweight or underweight position. So from my perspective, it's um, not a black box. It's a very transparent process. You know, if, you, if history was to repeat itself, we'd end up with the same portfolio. So it gives you that level of consistency and uh, unemotional dis decision making. Okay, let's stay with that. Yep. You know, taking the emotion out of investing. Why is that so important? Yeah, I think on average, um, yeah, my view is that on average, emotion detracts from performance. Uh, not necessarily in every case, but on average, emotion detracts from performance. You know, as humans, uh, we are subject to our emotional ups and downs. Uh, we are um, subject to influences, outside influences. So if I said to you, I think this company is a really good company and uh, we're very strong and think we'd like to have an overweight position on that stock, if you said to me, look at my research, my research says totally the opposite, it creates a bit of doubt. Um, now, that's not to say we have all the answers. Uh, you know, we don't buy by any stretch. But having that sort of discipline ensures that you've um, you back the ideas and the insights that you've researched, uh, you've empirically validated them, which means you've tested them to ensure that they do work, and then you basically say, okay, we'll keep improving our insights and how we model those insights over time, but every day once we're happy with those insights, we'll just implement them systematically without emotion to ensure that we're sticking um, to our processes and our discipline, because on average, discipline will reward you rather than hinder you. Okay, there's a saying that the data doesn't lie. I want to dive into what your models are saying about the market right now. What are the models saying about where we're in the cycle? Yeah, I'll just keep it simple and focus at things on a high level. Uh, as you're probably aware, we've had rate hikes since uh, early last year. So we're going through a rate rise cycle. We went from about 2010 to 2011, thereabouts, straight through to 2022, I think, where we basically had no rate rises. So there's a lot of people that are 10, 15 years into their career in this investment industry who've never seen a rate rise. Um, so we're in a part of a cycle which 
is a little bit different. We saw what, uh, what we call a lot of PE can, uh, expansion where price earnings multiples got higher and higher over the past decades as interest rates came down. We're now seeing a bit of the opposite. We've seen some price earnings multiples um, contract. We're seeing some of the high growth names, in particular some of the stocks in the tech sector that weren't really generating a strong cash flow and in particular in many cases negative cash flow, their valuations have come down. Um, so I think we're in a bit of a cycle now where I think fundamentals are going to become a little bit more important. Inflation is certainly high now, so you know real returns are probably going to be lower going forward than what we've seen in the past. So I think stock selection and good quality manager selection is even more important now. Do you feel like the cycles are getting shorter? Is that what your models are showing you? I don't necessarily think the cycles are getting shorter. Information um, dissemination is getting quicker. So the, the, the speed at which information is being released is getting quicker. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're seeing you know, stock price of mispricing uh, corrected a lot quicker. In fact, I've, I seem to think that uh, mispricing is actually going on a little bit longer. Because of that flow of information, because of the access to markets for anyone can go out there and trade a stock, mum or dad, your professional investor. Um, there's a lot more herd mentality, um, a lot more stuff on social media, a lot more people following certain trends. Uh, we've seen in certain markets, for example, in Asia five or six years ago, we saw a lot of mispricing that um, went on for an extended period of time. We've seen it in some of the US large cap stocks, some of the stocks here in Australia. So I think in this day and age, in these sort of cycles, um, you need to be a little bit more patient with your investing and probably wait a little bit longer than you used to in the past for some of those mispricings to correct. Um, so there's a difference between sort of mispricing cycle and business cycle. I don't think business cycles have gotten any shorter or any longer. So I think as an investment manager, uh, you, you have to probably stay with your convictions a little bit longer to see some of those mispricings correct and to reap the rewards. Okay. Where do you feel like there will be the most rewards? Where are you seeing the most opportunity? If I look at global markets um, in general, I see that there's two ways, if I'm broadly speaking, there are two areas you can add value to a portfolio. One is through what we call top-down factors, you know, maybe country factors or industry factors based on sort of economic conditions and so forth. And the other one is what I'd call sort of stock selection. Over the past number of years, um, especially as interest rates were coming down, we saw a lot more of the cross-sectional uh, differentiation in stock returns coming from top-down factors versus bottom-up factors compared to what we saw in, in the past. I've seen that We've seen that normalise over the last six or 12 months. So one is I think there's going to be more opportunities in stock selection going forward than what we've probably seen in the last you know, four or five years. And in particular, you know, taking a global, put my global hat on, probably more in US mid-caps and small caps and European mid-caps and small caps. How about in Australia? Yeah, in Australia, as you'd, as you'd appreciate, the Australian stock market is you know, um, very concentrated. You know, the top 20 or 30 stocks make up the majority of the, the market capitalisation. Um, if you look at the sort of mid and small cap end of the market, it's lagged the big end of market. Over the past number of years, we've seen the, the big stocks get bigger and they've outperformed um, and, and so forth. It's been a very concentrated market in terms of performance. I'd like to think that's going to normalise over the coming you know, four to five years and we're going to see a lot more value in that mid and small cap space here as well. Is there anything that these models have picked up that you think the rest of the market may have missed? Yeah, I'd like to say, yeah, we're picking up things that others are missing, but I don't think anyone's really that good. Um, at least I honestly <laughs> can't say they're picking up things that others are missing. So I don't like to say we're picking up things that other investors are missing. What I would say is um, that the types of information that we look at, the types of insights that we have and models that we use, they're very diversified. We look at things from you know, fundamental values, looking at a company's income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement. We look at some sort of behavioural aspects, certain sort of 
trends that we see in the market that are driven by investor behaviour that may not be fundamentally driven. We look at information that might have a horizon of you know, a week to information that might have a horizon of six months or 12 months. So we mix a lot of different pieces of information together to ensure that we're, that we're trying to get the best of both worlds. In saying that, that probably minimises our chance of missing something versus potentially other managers that might take a more concentrated approach in, in terms of how they invest. And I think our ability to process information quickly, systematically and be disciplined at least reduces um, the risk of missing things. You talked about, um, I guess, tracking behavioural data. What does that even look like? Yeah, so, you know, you can see certain things in the market microstructure, um, you know, certain trades, uh, certain volumes, um, certain trends that you might see in the market um, that you can sort of take advantage of. Um, We also see... Um, different things. There could be companies that might be related. One's trading in Australia or one's trading uh, in Europe. They could be the part of a supply chain or some other connection and there's a disconnect between them. Um, and that be that could be because you've got investors in, in Europe that are focusing on just European stocks and comparing that stock to other European stocks. And you've got investors in Australia that are comparing the Australian company that's linked only compared to its Australian peers and missing that there's actually a, a cross-border linkage there as well. Um, that sort of segmentation effects um, yeah, we think they're potentially behavioural and other sorts of frictions that can lead to mispricing like that. And then we, we try and take advantage of them as much as possible. Okay. A lot of active managers are finding it more and more difficult to beat the market. At least that's what they're telling me. Mm-hmm. Are you experiencing the same thing or are quant funds more likely to outperform? Um, active management's <laughs> been difficult at the best of times. It's, it's not an easy uh, business to be in because if you think about it yeah, holistically at a global level, on average, active managers will underperform after transaction costs and, and manager fees. Mm. So really, it's a, not only a zero-sum game on average, theoretically, it's actually a negative-sum game. So you know, you've got to be on your game, you've got to work hard. So it's, 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 it is a challenging um, um, business to be in. And as I said before, and I'll, and I'll reiterate again, it's about having the best people um, that have you know, good investment insights and having an investment process and a philosophy that you can stick to that will deliver our performance over time. Um, we've gone through our periods of challenging performance, um, like all managers do, and the aim there is to ensure that those periods of underperformance uh, are not too long um, and that we can have you know, much longer periods of outperformance than we do have periods of, of underperformance. Okay. Just two more questions for today, just common questions that we ask all our guests who come on this podcast. So in your view, what's the one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? Yeah, um, I think when it comes to investing, as I alluded to earlier on, there's a lot more that we don't know than we do know. And I don't want to say investors are getting this wrong, but I think you know, one of the most important things um, that I live by is it's, it's important to know what you know, but it's actually more important to know what you don't know. You know, if I look at this sort of ratio, which is what we call information to noise, if you look at stock markets, the information to noise ratio is very, very low. The majority of stock price moves and volatility that you see every day is driven by noise rather than information. And I think what investors may get wrong or may miss is that there's a lot more that they don't know than they do know. And so when you're constructing your portfolios, have a laser-like vision, focus on what you know, try and get those insights into your portfolio, but also ensuring that if there are things that you don't know much about or there are risks that you can't explain or can't model very well, try and find ways to hedge them or reduce the exposure in the portfolio to those. There's an inherent bias as humans where we focus on what we know and we try and only have tunnel vision for what we know and we actually miss what's on the other side. There's a lot of things that we don't know and you'll end up having inadvertent 
or risk exposure in the portfolio that you weren't aware of. Okay, last question for today, Mari. Could you share a story of a big win or a big loss from your career? What happened? Mm. When did it happen? And what was the lesson that you learned from it? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of wins and a lot of losses um, over the course of my career over the past 25 plus years. But one example I want to, uh, to give you today was an example dating back to 2005. Uh, there's this company called Dino Nobel. Um, it was a large explosives uh, manufacturer. It was owned by a European private equity firm. Uh, in 2005, um, you know, at the time I was at BGI, we were part of a, a very large consortium of large fund managers that went and approached the private equity firm to buy this company and effectively um, yeah, buy it off their hands. Um, and obviously the amount of to purchase it was a bit higher. We sold uh, the non-Australian, the non-US parts of that business to another listed company at the time called Orica. And then we retained the rest as a consortium. Uh, we ended up holding that position unlisted in our portfolios for a period of you know, six to 12 months. And then that um, stock floated, I think, in April 2006. And we we're fortunate enough to make multiples of um, what we invested in as a return for our clients. So that's probably one of the biggest single investments uh, we've made. But that was really participating as, a, as really a private equity investor holding an asset that was unlisted. And what that taught me at the time is, you know, the insights that we apply to the listed market can also be applied to the unlisted market. It's what I alluded to before. It's having investment insight, looking for certain characteristics and opportunities to, you know, purchase assets at a discount to where they may be fundamentally valued or purchasing assets at a price that may be um, attra- more attra- where somebody else may be willing to pay more than what you're paid for because there are certain synergies and, and things like that, that they can have in place. Also, at the time at BGI, we were very large in Australian equities, one of the largest Australian equity managers in the country. And typically, as you get larger, um, if you don't make adjustments to your process, um, generating outperformance can get a little bit more difficult because you become a bigger volume of the market, it's harder to move stock and so forth. But what comes with being larger is also some certain advantages. And being able to participate in deals like this, where we can have an influence on what price these deals are done at, how we negotiate the terms and conditions, um, and that was an example where we used our size to our advantage. And we've done that many, many times since, but that was just a, a big example that I could allude to just then. How about a story of a, a big loss from your career and what you learnt from that? Early in my career, as I said to you before, um, you know, I thought there might have been a holy grail to investing. So I, I then went away and, you know, and built an investment model that I thought uh, would work and I would pick up certain trends and elements and characteristics of companies. Uh, I then tested that and it was horrible. It was terrible. And uh, if we What had, was the model? I was looking at certain interactions between um, company cash flow and how that stock was performing on the stock market and trying to get an, an, a measure of the market underappreciating uh, that stock and what it was worth. Um, what I didn't realise is ultimately what happens in investment markets is people, stocks will trade at what they're worth, not what you think they're worth. Mm-hmm. Um, their investors have what we call... Um, non-homogenous expectations everyone has a different expectation and I learned pretty quickly as I alluded to before that um, there's a lot more noise that drives stock prices um, than there is information and I learned back then that you really have to take a bit more of a longer horizon approach especially when you're dealing with fundamental information if you're looking at companies balance sheets income statements you can't expect those sort of mispricing that you calculate to be corrected anytime soon they take a longer time to correct as a market um, starts to see those cash flows and earnings come through down the track. Is there one factor that you think is more important than the rest? Or maybe um, a few that you've learnt are really important to the success of a company? Yeah, look, I think I'll, I'll, I'll respond to your question this way. 
valuation factors um, have not performed well uh, for the majority of the last, you know, probably 15 years, especially in global markets like the US where they really underperformed uh, between probably 2010 to 2019, 2020. And a lot of people doubted, you know, um, will va- do va- does valuation really matter anymore? We saw a very similar thing back in 1999, 2000, during the tech boom bef- before the tech bust. And I suppose from our perspective, not necessarily the most important thing, but our investment process will always be anchored in fundamentals. We'll always have a, a portion of our investment process and how we construct our portfolios that will rely on fundamental information, uh, cash flows, income statements, balance sheets, and so forth. Um, I suppose so. you could argue that's an important part of our process. It is. Is it the most important? It might only be 20, 25% of what we do, but it's a fundamental anchor that will always be uh, a part of our investment process and always has been for the past 25 plus years. That provides an important anchor to keep us honest and to ensure that don't we get, we're not getting caught up with all the hype. But Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you invest in companies because they generate earnings, they generate cash flow over time. Well, Maury, that's all we have time for. I really enjoyed that chat. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? What are you doing? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. 